0: Hello, everyone. My name is Haley Elizabeth. And if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from cults, disappearances, murder, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel to watch the visual version every Wednesday. Or you can head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, and listen to the audio version every Tuesday. Now, if you are a returning member and you're on the visual version, you would see that I do have a different setup. Um, I change my setup every couple of months because I go stir crazy if I have to like sit in the same spot all the time. This is what it looks like now. I have my Beatles poster. I have my lamp from the Griswolds. I have a bunch of stuff. So, yes, head over to the visual version if you want to see all that. (laughs) But in today's video, we are going to be talking about the case of Gary Evans. And so there is a lot to get through. So we're just going to hop right into it. Gary Evans was born on October 7th, 1954 in Troy, New York. He grew up with his mom, Flora, his dad, Roy, and his half-sister, Robbie. Gary and Robbie grew up in a very abusive household from both ends. Both their mother and their father used to abuse them. Um, Gary would go on to say that he was actually SA'd by his dad when he was just eight years old. Gary's father would also do things such as taking out the light bulbs out of Gary's room so he couldn't see anything, and there was also a point in Gary's life where he was really interested in art and he wanted to create art, but his father refused to get him any sort of art supplies, and if Gary did have, like, paper and pencils or had, like, something that he could draw with, his father Roy would just take it away immediately, And as for their mother, Flora, Flora was not that much better. Flora abused alcohol quite regularly. She was drunk almost all of the time, and when she was drunk and super sad, she would also try to off herself, to which the kids, Gary and Robbie, would find her multiple times. There was also one incident where Flora tried jumping off the top of their apartment building, but Robbie, the younger sister, actually talked her out of it there was another time and this was something that would happen quite frequently where flora would go into the middle of the train tracks and just sit there and say how she was waiting for a train to come by and take her but 10 times out of 10 robbie and gary would always say things to her like we can't live without you what are you doing you shouldn't be doing this let's just go home and they would always always go home so through this it seems like Robbie and Gary were kind of taking care of their parents whilst also taking care of themselves and so it seemed like they didn't really get to have much of a childhood because they spent it mostly taking care of their parents or trying to defend themselves against their parents there was also one point in Gary's life where the mother Flora was having an affair with a local like doctor at a clinic So a lot of the times when Flora would go to have her affair, she would bring Gary along and tell her husband Roy that she was taking Gary to the doctor, to which Gary would just sit in the waiting room while Flora went inside of the doctor's office and had sex with the doctor, to which Gary heard everything that was going on inside because he was right outside of the door. And even that as well is very, very traumatizing for a child because it's just, it's so disgusting, but it's also just so like uncomfortable, especially when you're a child and on top of that, that's your own mother. Gary as a person was described as very possessive as a kid. He would often steal but not for survival but mostly for the thrill. At eight years old he stole a $1,000 necklace and gave it to his mom because he absolutely loved his mom and his mom looked at it very concerned but she ended up keeping it anyways and this continued all throughout his teenage years. He would frequently be caught stealing books, comics, and Shoplifting frequently, but a specific detail about his robberies is that he would never keep any of the things that he stole. Everything that he stole, like the books, the comics, the jewelry, he would always give away to other people, like his family and friends. So it just kind of proves further that Gary wasn't doing this because he wanted money or he wanted the object. He just wanted the thrill of it. And Gary, on top of all of that, was was also a very, very intelligent child. It probably comes into play that he had to mature at a very young age, but he got straight A's all throughout school. He was on this like um, national honor society and so he was a very, very good student. He also exceeded in school as well. It was said that since Gary and Robbie were both very, very sheltered as children, the neighbors even said that uh, Robbie and Gary were weren't allowed to go outside at all or even play with other kids, and so since Gary was inside most of the time, he would typically read a lot of books. And then in 1968, when Gary was 14 years old, that is when his mother Flora had divorced Roy, and Gary, his mom, and his sister Robbie all moved to Coho's. And then two years later in 1970, at 16 years old, although they were moved on at this point, Gary still kept up with his same lifestyle. He was stealing very, very often. He was caught shoplifting. He was arrested for breaking and entering and was sentenced to actual jail time for three months. And whilst in prison, just this small three month time period, his mom had absolutely hit rock bottom. She had been divorced four times throughout that three month period. And then the following year, in 1971, that is when she would come out to Gary as lesbian. And then when he was released in 1971, that is when he moved back in with his mother, but he immediately moved right back out because, as I said, his mother had just hit rock bottom. She was drunk all the time. She had been divorced. She was having men and women like constantly coming through the house and for a 17 year old kid Gary just did not want this and so he packed up all of his things he dropped out of school and he moved back to his hometown in Troy New York when he moved back to his hometown he met up with his two childhood best friends Tim Reisdorf and Michael Falco and the three boys ended up getting an apartment together As far as these two boys, I couldn't really find a lot of information on them, but for Michael Falco, he was born on February 3rd of 1950 in Troy, New York, and he was described to be the kid that was just always getting into trouble. He was definitely like Gary in a lot of aspects. He really enjoyed the thrill of things. He would do things mostly for the thrill. He was a really big thief like Gary. Michael was also very into hunting, and so he owned a lot of guns, and so he would keep a lot of these guns in the house. So overall, Michael was just a really big troublemaker, similar to Gary. As for Tim, however, Tim was described to be kind of a tough guy on the outside, but super soft and sensitive on the inside. He was the one that really wasn't involved in the crime itself like if Gary and Michael went to go rob some places like pawn shops he would mostly just tag along to watch or be like the getaway driver just because he wanted to feel involved without actually being involved but Tim did hang around with the bad crowd and the bad guys but people would describe him kind of like a teddy bear he was very tough on the outside but like inside he was a little teddy bear there. He was very soft and gentle. His passion actually was music and he was constantly playing music in the apartment when he was cleaning or cooking and it was his dream to be a part of a band that could travel the world. So that's what he was doing during this time. He was trying to get his band together. He was auditioning for like different traveling music companies and that was just his dream and he was really pursuing it. And so when the three boys got got this apartment together, Gary surprisingly took a time to kind of get himself together. He really started to focus on himself and tried to get his life back on track so that he doesn't go back to jail. So during this time, he was doing pretty good. He went to church every single Sunday. He had a job and even when he was like younger, like early teenage years, he never drank nor did he do drugs. He didn't even hang around with people that did drugs or drank alcohol. He just saw how much it affected his mother when growing up, that he just did not want to go down that same path. So he just steered away from it as much as possible. But he really was big into fitness. He would work out all the time. He loved to bodybuild and lift weights. He was making like protein shakes and doing all these like crazy bulking diets. And that That was something that he felt really passionate about and he started to bodybuild because of the intention that he wanted to be stronger than his father so that he would be able to defend himself and Robbie and his mother against their father. But although he was kind of putting all of his anger and stress into bodybuilding, it just wasn't enough and he would frequently take his anger out on other things such as animals. There was this one particular time where he had actually tied a cat's tail in a knot and set it on fire. But this part of his life did not really last very long when he was really trying to get back on track because he did crave that adrenaline. And not soon after, he was going in and out of jail for multiple arrests because of his thefts. But since he was going in and out of jail very often, he started to familiarize himself with a lot of the officers and detectives there, specifically a police detective named Jim Horton. Jim Horton kind of had a soft spot for Gary. He knew that Gary had a very tough life. Gary was also very young. He was still a teenager. And so Jim just felt really bad for Gary that he had to be out on these streets all by himself, that his parents weren't around anymore. So every time Gary would get locked up, Jim was kind of always the one to fight for him and say, you know, let's give him a lesser sentence. He won't do anything bad. Let's just, you know, let's try to keep an eye on him. And that would work most of the time. Gary would end up only getting like a couple months per crime, whereas if he didn't have Jim, it would probably cost him a couple years. And so in the mid-1970s, so during Gary's early 20s, he started doing more and more robberies, but he started to get a lot better at it. And so as he started to get more and more better at it, he realized that, you know, it probably wouldn't be the craziest thing to have a partner in crime throughout all of this, you know, a second set of hands. And so that's when he asks Michael Falco if he would be interested in kind of being his his partner with all of his robberies. And Michael said, yeah, you know, I'll definitely be there if I get my cut. I'll definitely help you out. And that's exactly what happened. Gary and Michael would start doing all of these elaborate robberies together. And so in the year of 1979, that is when, you know, Gary was doing his regular things. But he did get news from his mother that his father, Roy, had actually passed away due To lung cancer. And so instead of Gary, you know, being relieved or happy that his father passed away because his father had, you know, been such a traumatizing, aggressive, abusive character all of his life, and I know that may be like a little controversial to say, but um, if you guys have ever read Jeanette McCurdy's book, I'm Glad My Mom Died, it does really show that sometimes, you know, kids when they grow up in in such a harsh environment, it's a relief for that person to just finally leave. And that's probably how Gary felt. But instead, he felt very, very angry that his father had passed away. And more specifically, he felt angry that he wasn't the one that killed his father. And so during this time, he would constantly tell Michael and Tim that he had this grudge against his father, that he wasn't the one to kill his father. And Gary even said that if he could, he would dig up his father, revive him, and then just kill him all over again just to get that satisfaction. And so again, with all of this happening, Gary just kind of put all of his anger and frustration into bodybuilding as well as his crimes. He even started to get into the inner circles of crime-affiliated groups like Hell's Angels. And then in the spring of 1980, when Gary was 25 years old, he actually managed to escape prison with the help of the Hell's Angels. He said that when he was in prison, there were a couple of members in there that he was friends with and those friends actually like was able to throw him over the wall in the courtyard and Gary ended up escaping, but he was caught about five hours later on the ledge of a local library. He was on this ledge of the local library and he was threatening that he was going to jump off but the police was there the police brought negotiators and they were able to get gary down and from the pictures that i saw it looked like the police brought him down quite aggressively but i think it was mostly because he had escaped from prison people just saw him as a prisoner and so they just wanted to get him down to throw him back in jail and so because of this, because of escaping jail, he actually got a few extra years put onto a sentence for this. So since he was back in prison, he had a lot of time to think. And while he was thinking, that's when he started to become very paranoid and start to get this grudge against Michael. He started getting in his head and he believed that Michael was secretly talking about him to the police and ratting him out for all of his crimes. And that's why for all of the robberies that they have done Gary was always put in jail longer than Michael was. So Gary is released from prison and he moves back in with Tim and Michael. And as I said earlier, Gary, although he is in his like mid-20s now, he still was like a very intelligent person and instead of using his intelligence for beneficial things like starting his own business or getting a job somewhere, he instead applied that to crime and robberies. And a lot of his cellmates said that Gary wouldn't even really talk to people, the only things he would do was work out and read books. He loved to read murder mysteries and poetry. And Gary would also go on to say that he would spend most of his free time trying to, quote, expand his intelligence. But, as I said, he was not applying his intelligence into the right ways because, for example, just between the years of 1971 and 1998, Gary had received 15 felony convictions and was arrested a total of 22 times. And then in January of 1983, that is when Gary just decides that he's done with New York. He doesn't want to live there anymore. And his sister Robbie actually lived in Florida. So he went to go down to Florida just to live there for a little bit. But the following month in February, Gary actually got word that his mother Flora had passed away. It was said she passed away after she fell on some ice getting into her car in a parking garage but it was the middle of winter and so she bumped her head on the bumper of her car and when she was found she was lying in the fetal position and she had froze to death So this took a really big hit on Gary. Gary absolutely loved his mother. He did not know what to do without his mother. Although his mother had done so many unforgivable things to him, he did have a soft spot for her. And so this kind of sent Gary into another spiral where he was starting to blame himself that he should have been in New York. He shouldn't have never gone to Florida. And so with all of this guilt and shame built, Built up, he decides to move back to New York um, in the same apartment with Michael and Tim. And then in February of 1985, that is when Gary meets a guy by the name of Damien Kumo, who is a fellow really well-known thief in the city. And so Gary just asked Damien on advice for specific spots to hit and what shops would be, you know, the like less likely to get caught, which places have security cameras, all that stuff. And so Damien actually suggests this flea market that's not too far away from Them and he says that this flea market has everything it has jewelry, antique, electronics, and so Michael and Gary plot a plan to rob this flea market and so one night they sneak into the flea market to rob it but how they actually sneak into the flea market because it's like the middle of the night so no one is in the market at this point they were able to break into the place by hopping on top of a porta potty and then from that porta potty climbing onto the roof and on the roof there was a hatch to kind of like lower themselves into the building and that's what they did they took um two big duffel bags Loaded it up with all of these jewelries and electronics and just came out through the roof on top of the porta potty into their car and drove off. And they were able to actually drive off with $15,000 worth of jewels and valuables. Now, they weren't ever caught for this crime specifically, but they were actually pulled over by a cop because apparently a cop had actually seen them in the back of the building like this flea market and so the cop was obviously very suspicious because he's like it's the middle of the night what are these guys doing in the back of this flea market building so he pulls him over but gary and michael basically just say oh we stopped behind there because we had to go to the bathroom like we had a pee and there's a porta potty back there and so the police just kind of shrugged it off and he was like okay yeah go right ahead then. Like, I just, I just wanted to make sure you guys were okay. And so that's what they did. They drove off with $15,000 worth of jewels. And then in April of 1985, that is when Gary completed another robbery, but this time not at a store, but with a drug dealer. So he met up with this drug dealer and he acted as if he was going to buy drugs off of this guy. And so when the guy opened up the trunk to reveal the drugs that were in it, Gary basically just pulled a gun out on all three of the drug dealers that were there and Gary ran in the car and drove off in it and he actually was able again to successfully drive off in this car with twelve thousand dollars worth of drugs in it but Gary assumed that since they're drug dealers, they're probably not going to go to the police because if they rat out Gary, they also need to rat out themselves, but Gary stole their car. So, the drug dealers went to the police and they said that someone had stole their car but didn't say what was in the car, and so as Gary was driving home with all of this drugs in the car, he actually ran through a red light, and so a police officer was going to pull him over for that, but in Gary's mind, he thought that the police officer was pulling him over for the drugs in the car. So immediately Gary stops the car, he throws his gun out the window, he has this fake ID that he also throws out the window and he just books it into the woods. But Gary however was caught by the police the next day and he only got 2 months and was released 2 months later in July. So in July of 1985 when Gary is released, that is when he comes home and he makes a very shocking discovery in that Michael still is in possession of the $15,000 worth of jewels and electronics and Gary's freaking out. He's like, why didn't you sell these? Like, you know, they're trying to look for the person who stole all of that from the flea market. Like, we could go to jail. I could go back to jail. And Michael said that he didn't know how to sell all of it because that's usually something that Gary does. And so, gary's kind of freaking out and this then makes him very paranoid um you can definitely see gary when he was in prison as well when he gets overwhelmed he tends to resort to paranoia and so in a panic that is when gary tells michael to get all of the jewels everything put it in the trunk of tim's car and they were going to drive to florida to bury it somewhere So Michael does that. He goes downstairs to Tim's car and he starts loading up the trunk with everything that was, you know, stolen from the flea market. And Gary starts freaking out, not because he feels like he's going to get caught, but just the idea of him getting caught. Gary realizes that he's been in and out of jail so much that if he were to get arrested again, he would probably get like 25 years to life because the court would clearly see like you're not learning your lesson. We need to lock you up for a very very long time. And maybe that'll help you learn your lesson. And so whilst he's in this, you know, anxiety, stress, paranoia state, that's when Tim kind of tips off Gary. And Tim says to Gary, you know, while you were in prison, I noticed that Michael actually stole one of the necklaces that was, you know, in your stash. And Tim also starts to say further information to Gary, saying things like, Oh, well, I don't think you should trust Michael. Michael is not a loyal person. If he had the opportunity to rat you out, I don't doubt that he would. He's very selfish. He would do anything, but only for himself. And when Tim was getting in Gary's head about all of this, he started getting more and more anxious. And he was like, Yeah, you're right. Michael. Michael has been unloyal to me. He has been stealing from me. Even though Gary has no proof that Michael was stealing from him, Gary just kind of convinced himself that Michael was stealing from him. So that is when Gary goes into his room and he grabs his .22 caliber pistol with a homemade silencer attached to it and he went downstairs to meet with Michael. When Gary goes downstairs to meet with Michael, Gary at first confronted Michael saying things like, He knows that he's been stealing from him. And do you think this is a joke? Do you think I'm a joke to you? I clearly know what you're doing here. You're ratting me out to the police. And Michael's very, very confused. He's like, I would never do that to you because ratting on you would be ratting on me too. We do the same exact thing. So that would make no sense. And so Gary brings up the necklace and Michael goes, there's so many necklaces here. I don't know which one you're talking about. I would never steal anything like, that. And so at one point, that is when Michael was bent over inside of the trunk trying to organize everything. And that is when Gary pulls out his gun and shoots Michael in the back of the head. Gary realizes what he's done so he basically just takes Michael's body and flips it into the trunk since he was already halfway in the trunk at this point and then Gary runs upstairs he tells Tim we need to leave right now Tim has no clue what's going on until he goes downstairs and Gary opens up the trunk and he shows Tim Michael's dead body lying in the trunk and that's when Gary tells Tim quote if you don't help me hide him your next So that is when the two of them get in the car and they drive the car off to Florida in order to bury Michael's body and the placement of where they buried Michael's body was actually not too far away from his sister Robbie's apartment and so after this they simply just went home and got away with this crime for the time being. The police weren't looking for Michael. Michael didn't really have any close family or friends that would be concerned about his disappearance so inevitably the two boys just kind of got away with this for the time being and a specific detail that I was just in shock when I was reading Tim had told Gary that Michael was the one that stole this necklace but in reality Tim was actually the one that stole the necklace from Michael and not only that Tim actually stole the necklace and he actually sold it to a girl that the three boys knew very well. So basically, Tim was trying to get Gary to kind of, you know, suspect Michael of stealing the necklace. If they do go to sell all of this jewelry and realize that a necklace is gone, Tim is trying to blame Michael so that none of them suspect him. And it was actually revealed to Gary that Tim was indeed the one that stole the necklace when one day Gary had saw the woman that all three of them were very close with and she was actually wearing the necklace that was missing from their flea market stash and since the necklace was from a flea market it was kind of a -a one-of-a-kind piece and so when Gary asks the woman hey I like your necklace where did you get it from that's when the woman replies oh well Tim gave it to me and so when Gary learns this information he then just kind of holds this silent grudge against Tim and I'm not really sure why Gary didn't kill Tim as soon as he learned this information. Like he did Michael, like he learned that Michael may or may not have stolen a necklace and he killed Michael for that. But for some reason, he kind of let Tim live and he allowed him to live for many, many, many years. And then in August of 1985, that is when Gary, for the time being, was just trying to lay low. He realized that he just, you know, killed someone and people may be looking for Michael. So he just tried to wait until things cooled down. But even though he was trying to stay low he still needed that adrenaline he still needed to commit robberies and since he didn't have michael with him anymore he started to just do them by himself like he used to but he realized that breaking into actual shops was a little bit too hard for one person to do so that is when he started to steal from drug dealers again So Gary went up to some drug dealers and said that he has $15,000 worth of product and if they'd be interested in purchasing that product. And so the dealers and Gary all met up and Gary said that he has a policy. He brought a duffel bag with him and he said that the drugs are in the duffel bag, but he said that he has a policy. He needs to see the money counted in front of him and hold the money before handing off the drugs because he's had experiences in the past where people will just take the drugs and run and so the three drug dealers that were there they were like okay they count $15,000 cash in front of Gary it to Gary but Gary does not have drugs, so he just turns around and runs. And Gary was very familiar with this neighborhood as well, so he knew the layout of everything. He was basically just like weaving through backyards, jumping over things, and not only that, he was able to circle back to where him and the drug dealers met and steal the car that the drug dealers came in. But similar to the last situation when he was stealing from a drug dealer, the drug dealers went to the police but basically just said that there was $15,000 inside of the car and Gary stole that car. So Gary was caught and this time around he was given a max sentence of four years. During this time in prison, he started to write letters to Jim Horton, who was, you know, his best friend within the police force, and he started writing all these letters to Jim Horton, basically ratting people out. Gary said that he believes that people are ratting him out, so now it's his turn to rat people out. He also told Jim that he is getting very paranoid because there are some members of Hell's Angels in the prison that he was at, and they are trying to to kill him and it was also during this time in prison where he started to randomly fantasize about murder specifically you know you're in prison you're surrounded by a bunch of killers and so he started to wonder what that would be like and then he started to fantasize about an ex-girlfriend that he actually had that he hadn't seen for 15 years at this point and he started telling his inmates that when he's released he's gonna find her and he's going to kill anyone who got in his way including the woman's husband but whilst in prison one day Gary is working out in the workout room he's lifting weights and he makes a friend by the name of David aka the son of Sam the son of Sam is actually a well-known serial killer during this time and so the two of them bonded over bodybuilding and when the two of them were talking Gary started asking David about his murders and how did he he commit them and so Gary was kind of getting more and more information about murder and so that is when Gary just started to get more and more ideas that maybe I shouldn't stop at Michael. Maybe I should you know kill more often and maybe even become a hitman. So then in March of 1988 three years later that is when he was released. He had a max sentence of four years but only served three but when he is released that is when he reconnects with Damien Kumo. Damien Kuma was the guy that gave uh, Gary that tip to rob that flea market and so he starts talking to Damien and he realizes since he doesn't have Michael anymore to help him out on his robberies Gary asked Damien if he would be willing to team up and start robbing places and Damien said yes And this was a change of pace for Gary because typically uh, Gary said that Michael was a very excited person when it came to their robberies. He wasn't very patient or strict or routine. He more just went in there, grabbed as much stuff as he could, very sloppy, and then left, whereas Damien was a very experienced thief like Gary. So when they were able to rob places very successfully, they just did it more and more often. But one of the many downsides to Gary and Damien spending all their time together robbing all of these places was that Damien actually had a girlfriend named Lisa as well as a daughter. And so Lisa didn't enjoy Gary at all. She thought that Gary was taking up way too much of his time. She felt like Gary was taking him away from his family So then in September of 1988, that is when Gary and Damien decide to rob a local pawn shop by this older man named Douglas. Gary and Damien watched the shop for a week and noticed the routines of people that worked at this pawn shop. They found out that the pawn shop was owned by Douglas and his wife. His wife would leave the shop at 6 p.m. while Douglas left every single day at 7 p.m. And so one night when they are deciding to rob the place, they realize that Douglas never leaves after 7 p.m. And they're like, what's going on in there? Why isn't he leaving? And turns out Douglas was actually spending the night in the shop that night to do inventory. And so he was spending the night there. And instead of Gary and Damien just being like, you know what, we'll just do it tomorrow. They decide, no, tonight is the night we're going in there. So they wait until about 4 30 a.m. where they assume that Douglas is asleep. And so they sneak into the pawn shop. Damien is downstairs grabbing as much jewelry and electronics as he can while Gary goes upstairs and that's where he finds Douglas sleeping on a couch in the inventory room. So Gary stays up there just more as lookout. He's making sure that Douglas isn't going to wake up and if Douglas does wake up, Gary has a gun pointed towards Douglas. So he hears Damien downstairs, but since this was a very old building, literally every single step that Damien took, it was like a loud creak. Every cabinet he opened was super squeaky and it was just he was being super super loud and so Gary noticed that every time Damien would make a loud noise, Douglas was kind of shifting in his sleep as if he was going to wake up, which Douglas ended up actually waking up and immediately when Douglas opened up his eyes that's when Gary just shot him. Damien heard the gunshot from downstairs so he goes to run upstairs but Gary stops him halfway and says Douglas is awake just finish up finish up so Damien goes back downstairs in a rush he finishes up he grabs everything he can and the two boys go in the car and drive off. So while Gary and Damien drive off, that's when Damien asks Gary, what was that gunshot? Did you shoot Douglas? But Gary just says, oh, no, I didn't shoot him. He woke up and he started panicking. And so that was just a warning shot. No, he's fine. He's probably calling the police right now. And that is when Gary and Damien went back to Gary's home and they were able to get away with $30,000 worth of jewelry. And unfortunately, the next day, Douglas's wife, when she went into the shop to open up everything, that is when she went upstairs and found the dead body of Douglas. She immediately called the police. The police did a scan of the area and they weren't able to find much because they clearly saw that it was a break-in and it was a robbery because all of their stuff was gone. The only things that they were able to get from the crime scene was a footprint and a pack of cigarettes that Damien had actually... Dropped on the way out since he was in a panic trying to grab everything, and so this robbery was on the news the following day, to which Damien was watching it, and that is when he learned that Gary did not just shoot a warning shot; he had actually killed Douglas. And this was something that really hit home for Damien because although he did a lot of robberies, he genuinely didn't want anyone to get hurt in the process. He never hurt anyone during any of his robberies. There was actually one specific time where he was robbing a house and a little girl woke up in the middle of the night and just like asked him what he was doing there. But Damien was like, no, 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 like it's fine. Just go back to sleep. And the little girl said, well, I'm thirsty. And so Damien pours her a cup of water, gives it to the little girl, brings her back upstairs and tucks her back into bed and then just goes back downstairs and continues the robbery. So, so seeing that someone had died due to Damien's crimes it just gave him a really really bad feeling about Gary to where he now felt scared of Gary he was scared to walk away from Gary he didn't know what Gary was capable of doing so this was a very scary situation because Damien had a wife Lisa as well as a daughter and so he just wanted to protect the both of them from Gary but as time went on and the two of them over the course of a whole year, they did grow very close with one another, Damien and Gary. Gary even started to grow close with Lisa and their daughter. There were so many times where Lisa, if she had to work late one night and there was no one to watch her daughter, Gary would always step in and watch uh, their daughter for him. If they wanted to go out and have a date night, Gary would watch her. And then the following year, in December of 1989, same thing with Michael. When Gary started working with Michael, he started getting this paranoia that Michael was turning against him and Michael was actually out to get him and Michael was stealing from him. And so this same paranoia started to happen with Damien. Gary started to convince himself that Damien was out to get him and that Damien was going to rat him out to the police about the murder of Douglas that happened the previous year. He believed that Damien. Damien was ripping him off for that robbery as well. When he added it all up, Gary only got 15000 from that robbery, but believed that he should have gotten way more than that. And so that is when Gary just makes the decision that he is going to kill Damien the same way that he killed Michael. <laughs> Everyone's skin and skin type is different, so finding a clean skincare that actually works makes the struggle even worse. But thanks to Osea, you never have to feel like that. Osea is a California-based skincare and body care brand that has been making clean, vegan, cruelty-free skincare products for over 25 years with their products being proven to work and climate neutral certified. They use seaweed as their hero ingredient, which is nutrient-rich superfood with benefits like anti-aging and moisturization. With the fall weather coming up lately, it's been getting really cold and with the cold weather comes dry skin season. But lately, I've been wearing the Undairy, algae body butter and my skin has never felt more hydrated and soft. I personally love Osea's mission of clean seaweed-based skincare and body care products because since I personally have sensitive skin, different chemicals that are usually put in skincare products affect my skin, but I haven't had that problem when using Osea. You've probably heard of Osea through their TikTok famous Unduria Algae Body Oil, but now it comes in a body butter form. Again, with their iconic nutrient-rich seaweed, ceramides, and whipped shea butter, this body butter turns dry skin into smooth and supple skin. Osea have been proven 72 hours of hydration, and with its silky and buttery texture, it keeps your skin feeling and smelling amazing all day long. For clean body care that gives you facial skincare level results, You've got to try Osea, and right now I have a special discount just for the listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the promo code BEHIND at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order, and orders over $50 get free shipping. You'll want to get it all, so go to Osea, that is O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, with promo code BEHIND. (laughs) The holidays aren't all sleigh bells and mistletoe. They're also airports, shopping malls, and dining tables crowded with people. Give yourself the ultimate gift of a stress-free holiday with Next Evo's Naturals of fast-absorbing CBD products. Next Evo's Stress CBD Complex gummies are clinically proven to have four times better absorption than standard CBD. No other CBD brand can promise that. Personally, I have really been loving Next Evo's gummies, especially with the holidays. I'm under a lot of stress, and it really does help me with my stress, my trouble sleeping. Regular CBD oil works more slowly because of how our bodies process oil-based ingredients compared to water-soluble supplements. And regular CBD only achieves 2 to 10% absorption, so over 90% of what you think you're getting goes to waste. Help fight holiday stress with Next Evo Natural Stress CBD Complex Gummies featuring Ashwagandha, clinically proven to reduce stress by 70%. Get smarter CBD from Next Evo's natural and get up to 25% off subscription orders of $40 or more at nextevo.com slash podcast promo code behind that is n-e-x-t-e-v-o.com slash podcast promo code behind So Gary went out to the woods that was about an hour away from them and he dug a grave and he waited a whole week later and that's where he dug the grave that he was going to put Damien in. A week goes by and that is when Gary calls Damien and says that he needs to talk to Damien in person right now. They need to have a conversation but they can't be around any phones or computers because he's afraid that like the police are going to tap them or something so they need to drive out to the woods and talk. But when Damien and Gary are driving that is when Gary drives Damien to where he had dug the grave. Gary and Damien get out of the car. Gary points a gun at Damien saying that he knows Damien's been lying to him, that Damien's out to get him, that he's been stealing from him. And Damien just sat there speechless. He was scared. He was shocked. He was silent. He was just sitting there and he didn't know what to say he just basically froze up and that's when gary had handcuffed damien and shot him in the back of the head gary then wrapped damien's body in a shower curtain blanket and rope and buried him three feet deep in a grave that he had dug the previous week and put a wooden door on top of it covered with a bunch of leaves and dirt The next day, Gary calls Lisa and asks her if she has seen Damien. He says that Damien was supposed to pick him up this morning so that he could go to the airport and now he's late for his flight and he's so angry at Damien and that's when Lisa tells Gary, well actually Damien never came home last night so I have no clue where he's at and Gary pretends to act very concerned even though he knows where Damien is. He goes over to Lisa's house almost every single day to make sure that Lisa and her daughter are okay but Lisa never calls the police or anything because with Damien's reputation she doesn't know well what if Damien is actually you know completely fine but he's being held hostage somewhere or maybe like something had happened where he needs to lay low for a little bit and it's not safe to come back home So Lisa is just in this you know state of stress. She's panicking. She's freaking out because she doesn't know where Damien is but the only person that does know where Damien is is of course Gary and so to ease Lisa's nerves Gary tells Lisa that he heard through the grapevine that Damien was actually in California and Damien had been talking for a while now about how he wanted to abandon his family and so he tells this to Lisa so that Lisa would believe that Damien is in California and he just abandoned his family and so this made Lisa very very angry and so since she was very angry at Damien for just upping and leaving without saying anything this is where Gary came in and was kind of like her shoulder to cry on. And then shortly after this, this is when Lisa and Gary actually started up their own relationship. And Lisa absolutely loved Gary. She kept on saying that Gary, you know, was the one that stepped in when Damien left and abandoned his family. Gary took care of our daughter, even though, like, even when Damien was around, Gary still took care of my daughter. And she just absolutely loved Gary, unknowing that Gary was the one that killed Damien and so remember how I said earlier that Gary was in prison and he was fantasizing about that ex-girlfriend that he had so he actually during this time found out that that girlfriend lived in California and so he, Gary just flies out to California to where she works he shows up at her work again he hasn't seen this woman in 15 years this woman has has not seen him for 15 years so he gets into argument with this ex-girlfriend and says that he's in love with her and he's going to make her love him and all this very very scary things he even got into a huge argument with her husband as well but the woman kept on saying that she wanted nothing to do with Gary and then immediately Gary just said okay and went home and I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this specific part up but I feel like it does show that Gary is very unpredictable when it comes to his split second decisions and when he makes those decisions he just makes them without thinking. Like when he went to California he knew that this girl had a husband but he still went anyways and he just had this idea in his head that she was gonna fall in love with him even though she already had a husband and like kids. So then in October of 1991 that is when Gary walks into a pawn shop with the intent of robbing it. Now this wasn't his typical way of robbery. Usually he would sneak in in the middle of the night when no one was there but this was during like the times where um where like people could go in there and shop but during that time it was just Gary and the pawn shop owner. So Gary brings in a fake diamond and he tells the owner of the pawn shop whose name was Greg. He tells Greg hey I got this diamond I don't know if it's real can you Look at it, and so Greg leans down with like a magnifying glass and he's trying to inspect it. And whilst he's bent over, that's when Gary pulls out his gun and just shoots Greg in the head. And Gary was able to steal $60,000 worth of items from that pawn shop, but the next day, instead of staying in New York, he fled to Colorado. He does return from Colorado two days later to hide the gun he shot Greg with and buried it in a cemetery. And whilst he was at this cemetery, he then steals a 1,000 pound marble slab from one of the gravestones and was able to successfully bring it back to New York and sold it. But after this, for some reason, when he killed this pawn shop owner, it kind of did something to him. And it made Gary kind of realize what he was doing. He realized that he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be stealing. He shouldn't be killing people. He needs to get his life back on track. He can't keep on going in and out of jail. If he wants to be there for Lisa's daughter when she gets older, he needs to start making some changes. And so that's exactly what he did. He didn't commit any crimes for a whole two years. He got a job. He dedicated his life to Lisa and their daughter. He started to really settle down, but this unfortunately did not last for very long. Because two years later in March of 1993, that is when he breaks into a local antique shop and steals over $20,000 worth of items. But he was later caught and arrested for this and was placed in jail. And while he was in jail, he was also charged with the stolen marble slab as well. I'm not really sure how they were able to catch him for that crime, but he was um, given like added years on his sentence for that. And then exactly one year later in March of 1994, Gary snuck into the Norman Williams Public Library in Woodstock, Vermont. And when he broke into this library, he weirdly just stole one of the books. He specifically stole Birds of America by James Adubon. But what was particularly weird about him stealing a book from a public library, just one book by the way, He stole this book, but the next day he turned himself in to the police and he said that he had stole this book and he was sorry and he was going to return it. And so because of this, he was given 27 months in prison and was released in June of 1996. So once again, he kind of went on a break where he didn't steal, he didn't do anything, he dedicated his life to Lisa and his daughter and read all of these books and poetries and just really started to get his mind and life right but the following year in October of 1997. Again, this wouldn't last very long because he would go right back into robbing people. He then decides at one point that he wants to reunite with Tim, his old roommate. He hadn't seen Tim in a very, very long time. It's been about 11 years at this point since they had seen each other. And so that is when he starts getting all of those memories about how Tim was the one who stole the necklace. And, and so he starts building up this paranoia against Tim and thinking that Tim is going to rat him out, that Tim is like talking with the police right now and that he's stealing from him even though they hadn't talked to each other in 11 years. And since it has been 11 years, Tim at this point was in a totally different place than where he was when he was living with Michael and Gary. At this point, as I said, Tim was the one that, you know, did Tough guy stuff just because he was surrounded by tough guys, but at heart he had a big heart. And so during this time, he was actually married to a woman named Caroline. They had a son, and Tim was working at a recycling company. He was doing music on the side. He had like his own little band with a bunch of other dads, and they lived in the suburbs. Uh, he made really good money, and so did his wife as well. They had a cute little suburban family. And And it looked like Tim was just more in a like routine and structured lifestyle. That is when Tim and Gary started to reconnect with each other, they started to talk to each other more often, he learned that Gary has a kid and Tim has a kid, so they kind of bonded over that, and they started to hang out more and more often, until one night, Gary had asked Tim if he could help him move some things from his storage unit, so Tim said yes, and that's exactly what happened, but throughout the entire night when Tim was helping Gary move all this stuff from his storage unit, unit he kept on getting pages from his wife Caroline to which this made Gary very angry that Caroline kept on bothering him but it was mostly because it was getting late it was around like 11 30 p.m and Caroline and Tim actually had Caroline's sister's wedding the next day so she was just kind of making sure that he was going to be home early enough so they could get enough sleep and go to the wedding the next day so Tim basically tells Gary you know we got to hurry this up I have a wedding tomorrow we can't be doing all of this and so it comes around 1am and Tim is still not home and not only is he not home he's not answering any of his pages and so Whilst Caroline is kind of freaking out, she receives a phone call and when she picks it up, it's this muffled voice that she can't really like make out what they're trying to say before the line just goes dead and the person hangs up. And so she just thought it was maybe like an accidental call or a prank call, so she's, you know, calming herself down. She's like, "You know what? I'm overthinking it. Tim is going to be home soon. I should just go to bed and" get sleep myself for the wedding tomorrow but it wasn't until she woke up the next morning to see that Tim never came home so that day while she's getting ready for her sister's wedding she then calls the police to make a missing persons report that whole entire day she spent it at her sister's wedding and she didn't tell her sister what was going on at all she just wanted her sister to have her magical day but the whole entire day she was very very scared because she didn't know where tim was or what was going on and so the next day she properly went to the police and told the police everything she knew about Tim's last whereabouts. She told the police that he had actually reconnected with an old friend named Gary Evans. It was the first time they had met each other in 11 years, and the night that he went missing, he was actually helping Gary move some things out of his storage unit. And not only that, Caroline also tells the police that she actually feels like Gary may have had something to do with Michael Falco those disappearance as well because Michael and Tim both lived with Gary So as the police are trying to track down Gary, they attempt at tracking down the closest person to Gary, and that was Lisa. The police show up to the house and ask Lisa a couple of questions. Lisa says she last saw Gary a couple of days ago, and he told her that he was just going to get out of the city for a couple of days because he needed time to breathe. She believes that maybe something happened, but this was a couple days ago. This was like way before Tim went missing, apparently. And so she tells police that she believes that Gary has nothing to do with Tim's murder. She tells the police that Gary is an incredible guy. He, you know, was there when Damien had abandoned their family. He is such an incredible father and a husband. And so the police don't really say much to Lisa. Nothing really comes from it. But the next day, the police return to Lisa's house to try to put more pressure on her. They want answers this time around. They want to know where Gary is. So that is when Lisa confesses to the police that she actually saw him two days prior which would be the day that Tim went missing. He came home late at night shaking nervous and covered in mud. He left a couple hundred dollars with her and said quote I'll talk to you in a few years and that was truly the last time she saw him other than that she has no clue where he went he didn't specify where he was going she has no clue where he probably is going but the next day at lisa's home lisa says that she receives this random phone call from a like random number that she doesn't recognize and this guy on the phone it sounded like gary as if gary was trying to pretend to do another voice but this guy uh, introduced himself as Lou and said that he believes Tim is gone like Michael. So immediately when she hears this, she just hangs up. She thinks that maybe it's a prank call from someone who like saw the story on the news. But on May twelfth of nineteen ninety eight, uh, Lisa is just at this bar called Maxie's, and that's when the bartender says to Lisa, since she was kind of a regular there, he said that there was a call on the phone for her, and it's from a guy named Lou. So Lisa finds out at this point that Lou is actually Gary because she picks up the phone and it's Gary and he's saying that he's sorry and he's on the run right now. He then tells her that she is going to get a package on May 14th, which is in two days, and it's going to be sent to a bar called Jessica Stones and it's going to be from a guy named Jack Flynn. So she hangs up with Gary and she immediately calls detectives and says what's like what's Going on, that she needs to pick up a package in two days from Jessica Stone's, and so the police want to accompany her and see what is in that box. So, exactly as Gary said, on May 14th, uh, she shows up at Jessica Stone's and there is a package there waiting for her, and so instead of opening the package, she immediately takes the package out of the bar and into the police station. She drives over there and the police open it up together. But inside was not like what the police thought was going to be inside they thought that inside it was going to be like a gun or like thousands and thousands of dollars but when they opened it up it was just a lot of like wholesome objects there was winnie the pooh earrings there was stuffed animals there was some photos of himself there was antique vases like home decor and as well as a handwritten letter from gary that said something along the lines of quote you <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Don't talk to the police. They're going to lie to you and get in your head. So that was like the gist of what he was saying in that letter. He then tells her that since he's not there to protect her, he encourages her to get into a relationship just for protection. He then ends the note off with saying that he's going to call Lisa at Jessica Stones in two weeks, and so Lisa, again, does as Gary says. In two weeks, she shows up at Jessica Stones. She's there all day long and she then gets a call from Gary. He's on the phone with Lisa and he tells Lisa that he wants her back at Jessica Stones that same day at 5 p.m. to which Lisa tells the police. The police are like okay we'll be there at 5 p.m. just like you. So she goes back at 5 p.m. but this time she has a wire going through her so the police can hear everything that she's saying and Gary is saying because they're assuming that Gary is going to show up to the bar but Gary never shows up to the bar. He just calls the bar and tells Lisa that he wants her to go to the bar Maxie's instead. So she goes to Maxie's. She waits there for like 10 minutes. She gets another call from Gary and Gary tells her to go to the nearby Irish pub. So she leaves Maxie's goes to the Irish pub and that's when she gets another phone call from Gary and Gary's on the phone saying that he's currently four hours away and to meet him the following morning at this very specific McDonald's. So the police are listening into all of this. They know exactly where Gary's going to be. It sounds like Gary's going to show up to this McDonald's. So the police are on standby, and they all go to the McDonald's that Gary said he was going to be at. And so the next day, on May twenty seventh of nineteen ninety eight, uh, Gary did end up showing up to the McDonald's, but they didn't let Lisa inside just for Lisa's safety. They didn't know if Gary had a gun on him or anything because Gary. Gary has proven in the past that he has no issue with killing people that are very very close to him and so for Lisa's safety she is staying back but Gary is seen inside of the McDonald's walking around it seems like he's kind of observing the place trying to find Lisa but realizes that Lisa isn't there so since this was in the early morning it was kind of in the early morning rush at McDonald's and so he was able to just jump on his bike and drive off and just like drive his bike away and disappear. And the police had no clue where he went. They were like, that is embarrassing. Like we literally, we had the biggest, like closest, clear view of him. And then he just rides off. But thank God Gary does show up again an hour and a half later still you know kind of doing the same thing. He looks around trying to find Lisa and so I guess he understands what's going on that he realizes Lisa isn't here because the police are. So when he has this realization he bolts to like the woods that was behind this McDonald's but the police catch up to him and they immediately arrest him. On Gary they found a bunch of pre-purchased bus tickets, receipts from flights that he had taken, as well as multiple hats and fake IDs. He is then arrested, but Gary realizes that at this point, he's just, you know, he's ready to lay it all out. He's ready to give, you know, the police everything they want to hear. He's done running. He's done hiding. He just wants to confess to all of his crimes. And whilst in custody, that's when Gary confesses to five murders that he had committed when robbing pawn shops, including the murder of Douglas and Michael. He then tells that Michael's body is buried in Florida, but since Gary had such a reputation for escaping, he was considered an escape risk. So he basically just had to show the police on a map where the body is and the police flew out to Florida. Florida to find the body. And then Gary was immediately arrested and put into protective lockdown. And the following month, that is when he also admitted to the murder of Tim as well. And he also explains how Tim had manipulated him many, many years ago into killing Michael for absolutely no reason. He knew that Tim was the one who stole the necklace but pinned it on Michael. So he felt very guilty because he just felt like he killed Michael for absolutely no reason. And so because of this, he had a very deep grudge against Tim and wanted to kill Tim as well. And so one day, that is when Gary asked him if he would be willing to help him with taking some stuff out of a storage unit he had. And so Tim said yes, and that's exactly what they did. They were at the storage unit. But Gary said that he grew very, very frustrated with Tim because Caroline kept on paging him over and over again. And also, Tim was kind of rushing Gary along and saying, we need to hurry this up. I have stuff to do in the morning. And so then Gary hits his breaking point and at 1.30 a.m. while Tim is bent over grabbing a box in the storage unit, that is when Gary pulls out a gun and shoots him from behind. He then does something that he has never done before. He then takes a chainsaw that was in the storage unit and cuts Tim's body into five pieces and put all of those pieces into a bag and then into a cardboard box. He then went to a steep hill of a graveyard and buried it in a shallow grave he had built the week prior. He tossed the gun on his way out of the storage facility as well as tossing the chainsaw into the Hudson River to which even to this day that chainsaw was never found. So he was again given more time for the murder of Damien and then on June 24th of 1998 that is when he admits to killing two more pawn shop owners as well as Damien. He led investigators to the shallow grave in the woods that he had buried Damien in. And Jim Horton, the guy who's very close with Gary, says that you have led Lisa on for many, many years. Because at this point, Lisa and Gary had been dating for five years. And so he had just been leading Lisa on for five years, making her believe that Damien was this deadbeat person, when in reality, he wasn't. He was a good guy and he was just murdering murdered by the hands of Gary. And so Jim told Gary, you have to call Lisa and tell her what happened. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm just going to watch you do it because this is something that you need to do. You need to confess your crimes and own up to them. So that is exactly what happened. Gary called Lisa and told her everything to which Lisa was scared of Gary. She was shocked. She was angry and she at that point just wanted nothing more to do with Gary. And then on August 12th of 1998, that is when Gary was charged with eight counts of murder and the court was going to take 120 days to decide whether Gary should be a capital offender and get life in prison or if he would be given the death penalty by lethal injection. But Gary would never see the day of any of those consequences because on August 14th of 1998, Gary was being transported because he had a parole hearing. But prior to this car ride to his parole hearing, he had actually premeditated a escape plan of how he was going to run away. So Gary was able to get his hands on some handcuff keys and so he took a handcuff key and shoved it up his nasal cavity like up his nose so when he was in the back of the van he was handcuffed he pretended to sneeze off to his side because his hands are behind his back right now but when he sneezed that's when the handcuff key came out and it came off to his side exactly where his hands were behind his back and so he was able to unlock the handcuffs and then with that he was able to kick in the passenger side window of the van and was able to jump out the window and escape. The van was over the bridge of the Hudson River and Gary ran to the middle of the bridge with four officers chasing after him and so Gary stood at the top of the bridge and then jumped 62 feet down while throwing the middle finger with his right hand the whole way down. And this was indeed a premeditated act because within Gary's belongings, they also found a suicide note that he left saying that he would live the rest of his life in misery because he wouldn't be with the love of his life doris sheehan and at the end of his suicide notes he said quote i win Gary also left a note that he wanted to have released to television and newspapers but I don't think this note was ever released to the television or newspapers because I couldn't find it anywhere and Jim Horden also received a suicide letter from Gary with the same exact thing saying I win and once they did an autopsy they found a razor blade and a paper clip taped to his ankle underneath his sock they found a handcuff key stuffed up his left nasal passage. And this was very surprising how all of this got past metal detectors because before releasing a inmate to the outside world, they have to go through an extensive search. And these items were literally just taped to Gary's ankles. So it was very odd that these things didn't like beep when they went through metal detecting, but when they did retrieve Gary's body, Gary did pass away after jumping off of the bridge. As far as the aftermath of all of this, Gary never served any consequences for any of his crimes, but the families did get closure. They ended up finding Michael's bodies in the woods, and so the families were able to know what happened to their loved ones and also have their loved ones returned to them. And as far as Jim Horton, he is actually still a private investigator He actually worked alongside an author named William Phelps to make a book about Gary Evans and it's called Every Move You Make and in the book, Jim says that Gary was just a very special person to him and he says that in his office, he actually owns the handcuffs that Gary was wearing the day that he passed away, the key that he shoved up his nose, as well as the razor blade, the paper clip that they found around his ankle, and even a portion of Gary's ashes. So it seems like even though Gary has passed on, Jim still holds a very special place in his heart for Gary. And that is the end of today's video. If you guys found this story interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or if you are listening to this on Apple or Spotify, make sure to rate it five stars because it really does help me out a lot. And yeah, that is the end of today's video. If you guys found this video interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube or if you're on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because it really helps me out a lot. This case was very interesting to research and I'm also very interested into hearing what you guys have to say about it. Do you believe Gary deserved the death penalty? Do you think that if Gary applied his intelligence to things that were beneficial, would he have succeeded or would he have just always had this adrenaline to cause chaos or rob Places. As far as his sister Robbie, I couldn't find anything about Robbie. Robbie to this day lives a very private life, as well as Lisa. Lisa also lives a very private life to this day. She actually goes by a different name now, so no one really knows if she is doing well. But yes, that does conclude today's story. Again, if you want to follow me on any of my socials, that will be linked down below, as well as my P.O. box if you want to. See send me anything and as well as well all of the research that I use for this video. So if you guys want to go ahead and do your own research about the case, if you're interested and want to learn more, all of that will be linked down below just as a good starting point for your research. And if you find something within your research that I did not mention or that I didn't find in my research, make sure to leave that in the comments below because I feel like everybody here will be interested to hear what you have to say. So yes, that is all from me. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your morning evening or afternoon whenever you're watching this Um, make sure to take care of yourself today go outside read a good book do what you gotta do do some self-care today for me today it's thanksgiving so happy thanksgiving everyone i'm probably gonna eat way too much today but i hope you do as well but yes again that's all from me i love you i love you i love you and i will see you guys next week